everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode, part two episode of True Crime on Easy Street. Jamie Talent hates these. My name is Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. I am Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. And I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. And I think Jamie's probably gotten used to them by now. He better, because we're going to keep doing it, right? Oh, it's fine. Or you quit listening. (laughs) (laughs) Don't stop listening. I know, I know. In the spirit of that, Scott, you have a shout out? I do. Okay. I was sitting at my desk uh, the other day, and a a lady who works in another part of the building, we have a big campus there. There's about 40 employees altogether. Only four of us work at the Post-Herald. Okay. But uh, Alyssa Luciani works in the printing department. She screen prints. And she came over to the desk and said, hey, I didn't want to disturb you, which, of course, she didn't because I was working on this podcast. So don't tell my boss. But she said, wow, I just found you guys a couple of weeks ago. Somebody else in the office told me about it, and I started listening. I have been binge listening ever since. She loves the show. She loves the way that we all communicate and talk with each other. She said she almost feels like she knows us, like we're all friends just sitting together. When she listens to us do the podcast. We are. We're all Aren't we? I told her about us and how we've all gotten to know each other through the years. Uh, She said that the thing that she is uh, most regretful about is that eventually she is going to get caught up on all of our past episodes. Mm -hmm. And then she has to wait once a week for us to dole them out like everyone else does. So, But thank you, Alyssa, for reaching out. And she uh, reached out to me on Facebook to become a friend. And I think, Katie, you said the same Mm -hmm. for you. Uh, She also gave us a wonderful five-star review on Apple iTunes with some lovely words. Basically what you just She probably has more T-shirts than she can ever wear, but I think we should give her a True Crime on Easy Street (laughs) T-shirt. One one of the perks of working at Model T's is you end up with more T-shirts than you I'm can sure, wear. I'm sure you do. Thank you for listening, and thank you for the lovely review and five stars. Yeah, and if you're not as dedicated as Alyssa and you really don't want to finish this two-part series, I have a suggestion for you. Okay. There is a six-and-a-half-minute drunk history episode on Comedy Central about the Patty Hearst kidnapping that you can watch. And if you are familiar with drunk history... I love drunk history. You know how hilarious those can be. Kristen Wiig plays Patty Hearst. Okay. It's really, really funny. Okay. So so if you don't want to hear us for the next 45 minutes, just go do drunk history. You could do both. Do both. I'm going to watch that uh, tonight. It's it's pretty good. It's a good one. Love drunk history. That's that's a great show. If you've not checked that out, you really should. It's, It's really good. Uh, okay, so when we left off last time, the nine members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA, including new recruit Patricia Hurst, had just fled San Francisco after robbing a bank and making off with $10,660. Because we had 11 members and two were in jail. That's right. Okay. Yeah, Russ and Joe are in jail. Okay. So the SLA drove out of town on May the 8th, nineteen. 19- 74. This is three weeks after the bank robbery. They split up into three teams of three and headed south 400 miles to L.A. All nine members of the SLA moved into a rented house in Compton, which means they have to be very careful about being seen because here are eight white people and one black person living in a predominantly black neighborhood in south central L.A. So they stick out. Yes. The plan is to spend some time in L.A. where DeFries is comfortable. He's the leader of the group. He's the one black member of the group, but he's the leader. He's been there before. He's lived there before he went to prison. 
So after they resupply themselves, the plan is to spread out in these three separate groups all over the country and recruit more members. That's their plan now. I mean, they, they probably should grow their, yeah. their base there. Right. But first, they need to stock up. They might want to consider some more diversity in their group. Yeah. Well, a lot of the members are female. I mean, I just don't want to tell them how to do their business. Yeah. But. Well, it's too late now. Okay, yeah. You missed that by 50 years. Yeah, a little bit. But they need to stock up. They need clothes and ammo and weapons so they can continue the fight and arm and clothe these new members that they're going to go out and get, right? So Patricia and her two companions, and now we're going to get into some of the names of the other group's members of the SLA. We need to talk about these two specifically. Bill Harris, we had a quote from him in the last part, and his wife, Emily Harris. They are the two members who joined Patricia to become one of the three three team members of the SLA. So Bill and Emily Harris and Patricia Hurst, they're a trio. Okay. And they get sent out in their Volkswagen microbus van to the suburb of Inglewood to a sporting goods store. Mel's Sporting Goods. Is the Volkswagen microbus the same vehicle like that the coffee man has yes, turned into his coffee it. shop? Okay. That's right. 40 horsepower. Those are cute little vehicles. Yeah, but not very fast if you're trying to get away from a sporting goods store no, that I mean, you just robbed. Yeah, you don't want to take that too. Oh, that's yeah, a spoiler, that's your, huh? That's not your yeah, getaway car. That is not it. So, this is May the 16th of 1974. Bill Harris and Emily Harris go into the store. Patricia waits unattended in the Volkswagen van outside across the street. The keys are in the ignition. This is another time when the prosecutors will say, <sighs> why didn't you just leave? What, what did she say to that? I'm not sure that she had a good answer for that one. Okay. So she's reading a newspaper in the van while the Harris's go inside. A few minutes later, Bill and Emily Harris walk out of the store with the items that they have purchased and with one item that they did not purchase because Bill Harris had pocketed an ammo belt, one of those straps that you wear over your shoulder and across your chest that holds uh, shotgun shells. He mm -hmm. grabbed one of those and tried to steal it. And the young store clerk, who was studying to become a police officer, saw an opportunity here to pad his resume. So he spotted this act of shoplifting and accosted Bill Harris out on the sidewalk. Pretty soon, they are wrestling around on the ground, and the kid actually gets a handcuff on one of Bill Harris's hands. Just about that time, Patricia looked up from her newspaper. She saw the commotion. She didn't take off in the van. She didn't hide. She grabbed a semi-automatic rifle from the back of the van and emptied a 30-round clip into the facade of Mel's Sporting Goods store. Wow. Suddenly, it has become very difficult for anyone to believe that Patricia Hurst is still a captive of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's getting, this juror, it's getting harder for, to believe. For this juror over here this that, potential you, juror, that you wanted me to be, Yeah, I'm having a hard time with this one. Yeah. So let's get back to the sidewalk at Mills. It, so in, in the ensuing confusion, Bill and Emily Harris were able to rip themselves away from the clutches. I mean, there's bullets flying over their heads. So they're able to get away from the store clerk, run across the street, hop into the van, and in air quotes, speed off. Because remember, it's a Volkswagen microbus with 40 horsepower. They're not going anywhere in a hurry. 
Bill Harris figures this out pretty quickly. They need something faster. So they force a man out of his Pontiac Trans Am and steal it and then proceed to drive two blocks before it quits in the middle of the road. Oh, no. Remember, I mentioned a comedy of errors last week. That guy, they just stole his car. He's like, jokes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of gas, pal. Now my insurance is going to get me a new car. (laughs) So now they have to steal another car, which they quickly do. They got to get away from the cops. So is this like two counts of Grand Theft Auto? Yeah. Yeah, just, I mean, this list is getting longer and longer and longer as we go. When she fired the weapon, did she hurt anyone? No. Okay. No, she fired above everyone's head. A 30-round clip from a semi-automatic rifle, and then she grabbed her own gun, which wasn't an automatic weapon, and fired off another clip of 10 bullets. She fired about 40 rounds all over the heads of everybody. It seems excessive. Yeah. I think one shot or two would have gotten the clerk's attention. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe the trigger stuck. We will never know because Patricia is not telling. Okay. And it doesn't take long, of course, for everyone to realize in the van that the shooting at Mills is all over the radio in Los Angeles. Yeah. And Bill Harris identified himself as a member of the SLA to one of the guys whose car he stole. So now they know or have a good reason to believe the FBI and the LAPD that the SLA has moved to San Francisco, uh, from San Francisco to L.A. and is now operating in their city. Oh, man, that's stupid. But exactly where are they in the city? That's what they don't know yet. Did I mention that inside the abandoned Volkswagen van was an envelope containing a parking ticket? The van had been parked illegally three days before the events at Mel's, and a traffic cop had stuck a ticket on the windshield, included on the ticket was the address where the citation had been issued, and that ad- that address was half a block from the new SLA safe house on 84th Street in Compton. It's not a very safe house anymore, is it? If Katie's control board included the cool sound effect of a police siren wailing, now would be the time to play it. It could. We well, were not prepared. We missed an opportunity there. <laughs> Because here comes the LAPD in force, including about 20 members of their new special weapons and tactics SWAT team. LAPD had the biggest, baddest SWAT team in the country in 1974, and they were anxious and ready for action. The farce that had been the FBI's attempts to find the SLA in San Francisco for months would not be repeated in Los Angeles. That was the attitude of the LAPD. Like y'all can't so, handle your business in San Francisco, but we handle it We're going to mop so, it up for you down here. It was basically not on our That's watch. That's right. No. But when the LAPD and the FBI get to that safe house on 84th Street, it is empty. This is the next day. So the SLA has heard the same radio reports. They have a radio that follows the police frequency. Well, that's the smartest thing they've done. Yeah. So they are able to get out of that house before the, uh, before the cops arrive. So the LAPD starts to canvass the area around this house. They start asking the residents of this predominantly black neighborhood if they have seen a half dozen white people running around with guns. And sure enough, before too long, an elderly lady says, you're looking for a bunch of white people with guns? They ran into that house over there last night. 
And that's on 54th Street in Compton. So this is the next day after the shootout at Mills. Patricia and the Harrises are hiding out. They're, they're afraid to go back. They know they can't go back to the safe house. That was a plan. If anything happens, everybody leaves the safe house. They had a plan to meet up, but the folks from the safe house didn't follow the plan. So Bill and Emily and Patricia, they drive down to Anaheim and rent a motel room across the street from Disneyland. They figure it's going to be easy to blend into traffic mm-hmm. and to the public if they're surrounded by thousands of tourists. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in Compton, the LAPD SWAT team has surrounded the house at 54th Street, where the white people with a bunch of guns yes. have gone inside the night before. Patrol officers begin to evacuate all of the homes within a five-block area because the SWAT team is not going to let this opportunity pass it by. Mm-mm. By now, the big three networks in Los Angeles have all heard about all of this police activity going on around 54th Street in Compton. And so, to all of this already existing confusion, you can now add dozens and dozens of TV reporters. And some of those reporters are equipped with a brand new type of camera that will allow a live broadcast back to the TV tower. At the station. It also records audio uh, uh, videotape. It's a very early version of videotape. It looks like an astronaut's backpack. It's huge on the back of the cameraman. And then he has this big thing on his shoulder that is the camera itself. But in addition to recording audio, uh, videotape, it also broadcasts back to the tower. Prior to this technology existing, local news stories of any sort of widespread interest were recorded on film and had to be rushed back to the TV station and then developed and then be shown on the air. So live news at that time really did not exist anywhere in this country, except in LA where this new technology had just been put into use on the street in what would turn out to be a real life combat zone. And so we've got the SLA and Patricia Hurst and the shootout at Mel's, and the mad getaway, and a citywide manhunt, and now we've got live TV coverage. Here we go. One day in the spring of 1974, the entire nation saw something on their television sets that no one had ever seen before. Patricia Hurst and Bill and Emily Harris watched along with the rest of the nation the events that unfolded on the afternoon of Friday, May the 17th, 1974, in the south-central Los Angeles neighborhood of Compton. The LAPD had over 300 officers on the scene. They had surrounded the house, evacuated every house within a five-block radius. They were heavily armed and determined that the SLA would not make fools of them the way they had made fools of the FBI and the San Francisco Police Department. When everyone was in place and ready, an LAPD sergeant made this announcement over his microphone system. To the people in the house at 1466 East 54th Street, you are surrounded. Surrender and walk out. You will not be harmed. Hmm. Of course, the SLA didn't believe that. Sure. 
yeah, that, because their their style is not to trust exactly law enforcement. Pigs. Wow, we got more people calling them pigs. Yeah, that whole Manson thing. We didn't cops learn a, were pigs. We didn't learn anything, or was that all going on at the same? This time? This is seventy four. Manson so was sixty nine, so it's still well, going on. Have, yeah, okay. So at that point, an eight year old boy walked out of the house and was escorted away by police officers. When they asked him who else was in the house, he said, a bunch of white people with guns. The worst. (laughs) So the LAPD lobbed a tear gas canister through one of the windows at the front of the house. But instead of surrendering and laying down their weapons, a female voice from inside screamed back, hey pig, smoke this, and fired off a barrage of bullets in the air from her automatic weapon. Don't sound like a good idea. You said there's... 400 LAPD? 300. 300? Yeah. So who's the who's the eight-year-old little boy? What's he doing in the home? They had commandeered a house. Like, maybe it had a for-rent sign out front. It's a little unclear about that. Maybe it was a, a house with extra rooms. That night, in a panic, they just went in and they, said, yeah. we're here tonight. And, and we're, we we're, have guns. We're, we're taking over your house. And so, oh, wow. But somebody saw them run in. Yeah. So the little boy was unharmed. Correct. He was okay. Yeah. And then while he's coming out and getting brought to safety, then this lady yells this. Yeah. Right. A pig. A pig smoke smoke this. this. And she is firing an M1 carbine that has been modified to fire up to thirteen hundred rounds per minute. Much more powerful than anything that even the LAPD SWAT team has in its arsenal at the time. That's just a weird And there's a carload of ammo in that house. That's just not that's a weird catchphrase and that's all the phrases you could choose it was a smoke grenade and they did refer to the police as pigs okay all right i'm not saying it's very creative but i get where they were coming from okay all right so basically the biggest firefight in the history of the los angeles police department has just begun and their lives they're live live at one point on la tv a reporter was live on the air as a bullet whipped past his head and flacked into the wall right behind him. You can watch it on video. Did he stop what he was doing? Did that get his attention? They relocated. I'm sure. Immediately. A little too close. Gosh. Oh, and I I did watch that six-part miniseries on CNN. Like Like I told you guys, it was nine bucks. I saved my receipt. You guys owe me $3 a piece. So there's gunfire. There's cops running up and down the street, ducking and diving behind cars. Cameramen are blocking the sidewalk. People are running scared. Kids are crying. And everyone in the country is watching this happen on live television. And everyone in the country thinks that Patricia Hurst is inside that house. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, we have a new sponsor here at True Crime on Easy Street. It's A&W Outdoor Services. They're located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. It's almost time to tidy up your deck, clean the gutters, and spruce up the yard and landscaping around your home or your house or your creekside cabin. And who better to do that for you than the professional crew at A&W Outdoor Services? Call 256-706-7964 and let Alan Wells and his guys do all the hard work for you so you can spend your time this summer enjoying your piece of Cherokee County in clean, carefree comfort. 
Call Alan Wells today for a free estimate or to get on the schedule before it fills up. And it's going to be full soon. Call 256-706-7964 A&W Outdoor Services. It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await. Wet a hook in beautiful Weiss Lake. Swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club. Climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village. Hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve. Take a days-long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park. And much, much more. The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds. And they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be. So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the Chamber by visiting Cherokee-Chamber.org. If you want to keep current on all the happenings in and around Cherokee County, a subscription to the Post-Herald is a great way to do that. The Post-Herald is a one-stop shop for local, state, national, and world news and sports. The Post-Herald also contains crossword and Sudoku puzzles, syndicated opinion and advice columns, and free classified ads. Depending on your zip code, you can get a full year of the Post-Herald delivered to your door for as little as $20 annually during our springtime subscription drive. That's cheap. So call call 256-927-4476 today and subscribe to the Cherokee Post-Herald. That's 256-927-4476. Thank you for being a sponsor. This week coming up at Easy Street, tonight, February 8th, is game night. Tomorrow, Thursday is trivia. Friday night, Jake and Casey. Saturday, Paris. And then next Tuesday is going to be Valentine's Day, and we'll have bingo. We'll see you there. Take us to the motel. Is it a motel? Is it a That's motel? That's right. It's a motel. In Anaheim. That's right. Across the street from Disneyland. Okay. So Bill Harris and Emily Harris and Patricia Hurst are watching all of this on TV along with everybody else in the country because it's every network has picked it up. This one feed from this one camera with this new technology, the station in L.A. has decided to break protocol and share it with the other stations in L.A. So that's ABC, NBC, and CBS, which are the only three networks in existence at the time. And pretty soon they've got it sent out to all of their affiliates across the country. So the whole country is watching this happen. It takes a couple of hours. And it turns out to be the live on-air execution of six members of the SLA. My gosh, that, what, what are we down to now? Well, five? Uh, if you count the two incarcerated, yeah, we've got five. But, I mean, what choice did the LAPD have, right? I mean, No, I mean, no. hey, pig, smoke this, and the, she starts just yeah. unleashing. I think we can all agree that the LAPD has made horrible mistakes through the years. Yes. But DeFreeze and the other SLA members in that house were firing automatic weapons into the neighborhood, and they were all on record as being willing to die for the cause they believed in. There was no talking them out of that house. It is never a good idea to fire a weapon at law enforcement. Yeah. Uh-uh. That usually doesn't end well. No. Yeah. And so somewhere amidst all of those automatic weapons 
all of those bullets leaving and entering that house, it caught on fire. All on live TV. At some point, someone in the house kicked the floor furnace out of the way, and the six members of the SLA crawled down into the crawl space beneath the house, which was a complete inferno at this point. Good. It was determined later that one or more of the estimated 5,000 bullets fired by the LAPD hit a gas can that started a fire. When the smoke had cleared, literally, the new news story everyone wanted an answer for was, was Patricia Hearst inside the house? And it would take 24 hours for the L.A. County coroner to determine that she was not. Patricia and Bill and Emily Harris They laid low in L.A. for two weeks after this happened and then blended in with Memorial Day traffic and headed back to Berkeley, the one place that the three remaining marching members of the SLA figured they could find some support. They were running for their lives from what they felt certain would be death at the hands of the police if they were even spotted. And that's an argument that Patricia makes. I was, I feared for my life. They had me convinced that if the cops saw me, they wouldn't even try to haul me into custody. They would just shoot me. There was one last communique from the SLA. This one recorded by Patricia Hurst. It was sent to a Berkeley radio station. And this was basically the last communication from the SLA. She concluded the message one last time with... Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the lives of the people. It was, an, it was an obituary for the six members of the SLA who had been killed in the house fire in Compton. Including the leader, correct? The yes. leader is now dead. Correct. So this, Now Bill Harris is the new leader of the SLA. So this would be of the three member. an opportunity for her to... Skedaddle. Get out of it. Yeah. As okay. my maternal grandmother used to say, skedaddle. Yeah, okay. Despite that opportunity, for the next 15 months, Bill and Emily Harris and Patricia Hurst lived their lives on the run. They made contact with some other young people who helped them get across the country. They went all the way to the East Coast at one point. They ended up in a farmhouse in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, ostensibly to work about a book that would tell their story. Ironic. The book idea ended up being a bust, and the trio had to leave the farmhouse. The farmhouse was being rented by a professional journalist who had connections to the counterculture who helped them get across the country and was hoping to profit from the sale of the book that they would write while they were hidden in his rented farmhouse. Now, why did that fall through? Uh... They couldn't figure out how to write the book. They, they, they fiddled around and typed up some stuff and, and recorded a bunch of audio tapes, and most of it written by Patricia Hurst in her own handwriting. And they found some of it later, which was just another uh, brick in the wall for Patricia's prosecutors hmm. to stack up against her. Okay. And the FBI couldn't find them all this time because nobody wanted to help the FBI especially people in the age group that would be maybe involved in the counterculture movement, mm-hmm. the 16 to 25-year-olds. They slammed the door in the FBI's face. The FBI was a bunch of crew cuts with suits. Mm-hmm. They couldn't infiltrate this community. 
and there find was, out anything about them. There's there's zero trust in anything. Yeah, in at that, that time, yeah. the FBI, the police, they were all pigs, and we're not talking to you. And the FBI had just been dragged through a bunch of congressional hearings following the death of longtime uh, director J. Edgar Hoover and the revelations of decades of constitutional abuses against innocent American citizens had come to light. Yeah, there was there was reason not to be trustworthy. Exactly. <laughs> or not to, to trust the, the FBI. The, yeah. the reputation of the FBI at the time was not very good. No. So now the, and that, that's over several months, but we're going to skip over all that part. The SLA is back in California now, and they've relocated to Sacramento. All three of them. All three of them. They haven't managed to recruit. Any they have. Members. They've recruited a few new members. Oh, They've got what? three or four new members. Okay. All right. Okay. And. We have a, do we have a baker's dozen yet? Not yet. Okay. Because we've lost the six from the house fire. Okay. Yeah, we're up to like a, a seven. A we've got seven active members not counting the two in jail at this point. And now we're to April of 75, and the the newly reformed SLA needs money again. I mean, yeah, it doesn't pay to live underground and talk about... They ran death, out of money. ...death to pigs. So they settled on robbing a branch of the Crocker National Bank in the Sacramento suburb of Carmichael, California. They rented a couple of getaway cars, they use stolen credit cards to do that. And they plan the heist for Monday, April the 21st, 1975. Myrna Opsel was the treasurer at her local church. And on that day, she was dropping off the previous day's offering from the Sunday service at the bank. She was a mother of four she was accidentally shot by Emily Harris during that bank robbery with a 12-gauge shotgun. Accidentally? That was the story that they told. Emily Harris and the other three members of the reinvigorated SLA left that bank and escaped in a car driven by Patricia Hurst, who had waited outside the bank with the engine running. Alone? There was somebody else in the car with her. Mm Mm-hmm. A short time later, at the local hospital, Myrna Opsel died on the bed in the emergency room after several minutes of attempts to resuscitate her. The last surgeon to stop his attempts to save Myrna's life was her husband, oh. who was the surgeon on duty in the ER that day. Oh, my gosh. We will circle back to that. Mm. That bank heist happened in April of 1975, and until she was arrested in September of 75, Patricia lived in San Francisco with a new boyfriend, another member of the SLA, one of the new recruits. His name was Steve, and he had helped with the Carmichael bank robbery. The new SLA plan of attack after the robbery was to plant bombs. With her own hand, Patricia placed at least one bomb under a parked police car but it was a dud and did not go off. There were another set of bombs, two of them, placed at a courthouse in August of 75. They also did not go off. I'm sorry, they did go off, but no one was hurt. And another pair of bombs designed to kill police in L.A., was, they were both placed under patrol cars. They both went off. Again, nobody was hurt. 
and they drove all the way back to L.A. to place these two bombs. Just it, That was an attempt to get back at them for what had happened at the Compton House when the when the fire happened and the six members were lost. They so, drove all the way back to L.A., 400 miles back to L.A., placed these two bombs, turned around and went home, hoping to kill some police officers. But why did it not kill someone? Uh, it was faulty design. It didn't go off when it was supposed to. It wasn't as powerful as they thought. Maybe nobody was in the car when it happened or it blew in a different direction. It just it, it was another comedy of errors that was mm-hmm. that defined most of the attempts by the SLA to perpetrate these crimes. I know with the police cars, they said that they had turned at an angle to get out of wherever they were parked at. Yeah. And if they hadn't have turned like that, it would have went off differently and it was just like a... It was a it was a it, it was a wooden clothespin that had screws screwed into both sides, and if those two screws connected, that would complete the circuit, and the bomb would go off. And so, what they did, they stuck a little piece of wood in between the paper uh, the the clothespin with a string on it, and there was a magnet that was going to pull that piece of metal out from between them. And the way that, like Katie said, the way the car pulled out of the parking space, mm-hmm. that you know how sometimes a wooden clothespin, if you close it real fast, it sits on top of itself instead of closing. Yes. That's what happened. And so the two metal screws didn't touch each other, didn't complete the circuit, and it didn't go off. Hmm. So they're not good at riding, and they're not very good at building bombs. That's right. Yes. You're- and I didn't know this. Tubin pointed out in American Heiress, his uh, 2016 book about the Hearst case, there had been over 50 bombings in California in the first nine months of 75 alone. That was the uh, weapon of choice for the disgruntled revolutionary at the time mm-hmm. was a pipe bomb, mm-hmm. usually at a police station or some other government building. And, you know, California, you've got, you've got the Golden State guy. At this point, he's raping everybody in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Climbing in their windows with no pants on. Uh, Zodiac is back. Zodiac. He's sending letters to Paul Avery at the Chronicle again. Yeah. And then you've got this group. Tobin Tobin wrote that after hours, explosions at power plants, government offices, and corporate headquarters became so routine that they scarcely received any news coverage. That's crazy. Can you imagine that? I cannot. Finally. On September the 18th, 1975, the FBI located Bill and Emily Harris and a few of the new members of the SLA who had joined after the Compton shootout. They were arrested in one part of town that day, and the FBI found information at that address that led them to another address where they thought they might finally find Patricia Hurst. So a couple of agents got into their car, they drove to this other address, and when they got there, they found the back door of the house open into the kitchen. It was a warm afternoon. Maybe they were letting the breeze in. This part of the world, all the houses probably didn't have air conditioning, especially at this time. Yeah. I know a lot of places in California, they don't have yeah. air conditioning. Okay. So, they're, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice afternoon. You mm-hmm. kick the door open and let the breeze in. And when one of the FBI agents gets to the back of the house, he looks inside, and there's Patricia Hurst sitting at the dining room table with a friend of hers named Wendy uh, Yakamura. Doesn't matter. So there's a brief standoff. No weapons are fired. And finally, after 19 months, first kidnapped and then on the run and then a wanted FBI fugitive, 
Patricia Hearst was finally in custody. And she was defiant until the very end. There's a famous photo of her clenched fist salute that she gave to reporters as she was being hauled away in the back of an unmarked patrol car. And when she was taken into jail for booking and asked to state her occupation, Patricia Hearst answered, Urban Gorilla. How about us? She was still a radical after her arrest, at least initially. Uh, Tubin found letters from Patricia to Steve, her boyfriend, in which she spelled America, A-M-E-R-I-K-K-K-A. Oh, yeah, that's a no. So Patricia Hurst was in a lot of trouble, 19 months on the run. She was no longer considered a symbol of wounded innocence. She had become a symbol of wayward youth, an outlaw even. In her recorded words, she had repeatedly blamed society for her actions, and now society was about to blame her, and Katie is going to tell us all about that right now. The first thing that the Hearst family does within days of her being arrested is they hire Effley Bailey as her defense attorney. And you've probably heard the name Effley Bailey. We mentioned him. If you our- listen to our O.J. Simpson episode, you have. Exactly. And he has ha- he's, he's done some other famous cases. He is described as a living, breathing Perry Mason, except one of the most famous attorneys in the history of our legal system, but especially at this time. Oh, yeah. Quickly, between Bailey and his chief assistant, attorney Al Johnson, the strategy for the defense becomes to claim that Patricia Hurst was brainwashed into behaving the way that she had come to behave. That is not an actual legal defense, and I'll get into that in just a second. Four days after her arrest, Patricia submits an affidavit to the court in an attempt to be awarded bail. Now, she is arrested for armed robbery. Yeah, she's she's on the hook for the Hibernia bank robbery. And you don't usually get bail for this. Right. But she submitted an affidavit for bail in which she claims all the illegal acts she took part in were against her will, committed while under a drug-induced duress, and out of fear for her life. That was her standard refrain. I was drugged. I feared for my life. They said the cops were going to kill me. I had to do what they said. Persuasively coerced is the actual legal term for the defense. Brainwashing is not a legal defense. I mean, it's it's a term that gets thrown around a lot, but it's not accurate. Some really. mediocre journalist actually created the term brainwashing. I looked it up. Hmm. Yeah, I knew it was a made up word at yeah, some point. It was, uh, it was a journalist. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Effley <laughs> Bailey and Al Johnson could not claim that she was not in the bank at Hibernia in April of 1975. And that was the charge she was on trial for. Security camera images and her own words on tape taking credit. She for took that credit. Robert. Yeah. Now, there's there's some other crimes that'll come up later for her, but once again, we are only talking about this bank robbery at this time. Only defense left to them was to prove that she was persuasively coerced, same as if she had given a statement. Co- coerced by a police officer who failed to give her her Miranda warnings. That's all they've got at this point. And they're they're working their hardest. These are high-paid attorneys oh, yeah. doing their Trying best. Trying to get her off as best they can. At the time, the case was considered the trial of the century. And we, we've heard that before. Yeah, on that's, show. that's come up a few times. So was OJ. So <laughs> yeah. was... Uh, but this was 20 years before OJ. That's true. So... 
trial starts February 4th, 1976, two years to the day after she's kidnapped. Bailey and Johnson rely on three psychiatrists with backgrounds in the field of coercive persuasion or brainwashing to anchor their case and all their arguments to the jury. And these psychiatrists are good. They're, they're good for their witness stand. They spend a lot of time with her. It's like anything that's brought up, they can bring it back to, oh, that's not her fault. Okay. Like, oh, so, and you know, one of the women, they had to have, they were there and they coerced her. And then you come to find out that that woman wasn't there. And then the psychiatrist is like, that's the kind of influence she had on her yeah. because she could coerce her without even How being How interesting there. that even in her absence, she was able to coerce. Yeah. Hmm. Patricia was, in fact, subjected to many psychological evaluations during all of these proceedings. Kelly was mentioning earlier, she was never diagnosed with any... any No, I don't think anything ever got uh, tagged onto her as a a diagnosis. They were just trying to figure out how coercively she was persuaded. Mm -hmm. Okay. Big words. One of the big disagreements in the trial between the prosecution and the, the defense was over the issue of rape. I don't think that this discussion would have been had exactly the same in today's society. I totally agree. Earlier in multiple audio tapes, Patricia has claimed to be in love with one of the original SLA members who had kidnapped her, a guy named Willie Wolf. Now she's claiming in court that that he had repeatedly raped her while she was being held captive in the weeks after she was kidnapped. In the tape the SLA released to eulogize their dead comrades after the shootout in Los Angeles, Patricia had called Wolf, and I quote, the kindest, most beautiful man I have ever known. Except except he, now she's saying he's raped her continuously. Okay, okay, so we've, we've, we've changed our story. Yes. One argument by people who do not believe Patricia's version about the rape was that the, SL, was that the SLA, when Patricia joined it for a lack of a better term, was mostly women who were strong feminists and that they would not have allowed their fellow soldiers to do such a thing. That was their argument. Yeah. Which even... If Rape's you, not going to happen on their watch. They're, they're strong feminists. Wouldn't, they wouldn't allow the two male members to just have their way with this new kidnapping. Right, which even in the documentary, which has one of these former SLA members mm-hmm. on it, he speaks and, and says... We would not have, you know, these women would not have allowed it. We yeah. wouldn't allowed it. This is this is not how we did. Now, this is his version of it. You know? They right. also consider them themselves as a group, a, femi- a feminist fem- group, a yes. feminist group. Yeah. So, yeah, that that in okay, support that, of feminist causes. That doesn't make sense. Okay. Yeah. All right. Continue. The other side of that argument was that feminists would not have kidnapped a nineteen-year-old girl to begin with. So, you know, legal wrangling back and forth. Yeah, okay. All right, good point as well. Bill Bill Harris and Emily Harris had supported Patricia's defense up until this point that she's claimed to be raped. Which, like I said, Bill Harris is the man that's in this documentary, the CNN documentary, and he's given his... His version. So if you want, if you want two sides to the coin, you you he sounds very believable to Mm -hmm. me. I mean, I know he's a convicted felon, but now is Bill saying that Patty is right? Patricia is right? No, he's saying that she's making this up to try and not go to jail because we nobody raped her, and no, she willingly entered into a relationship with Willie Wolf. Yes, and no one coerced her. Correct. 
And he said she entered into this relationship pretty quickly after being kidnapped. Like she 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 was kidnapped. She she's in she's in with him, and then she's getting comfortable. She's entered into a relationship. Right. She's in love. Hmm. In an interview with a magazine while she's in jail, Emily Harris said Patricia loved Wolf and wore a little monkey-shaped charm around her neck that Wolf had given her and that he had worn an identical necklace, kind of like their version of half-hearted lover's charms or best friend bracelets, that kind of thing. And the prosecution produces the monkey charm that Wolf had worn and the matching one that Patricia had been carrying in her purse when she's arrested. So when they hear about this charm, they go down, they check the evidence locker. Hey, there's that necklace. Now, Willie, was he killed in the shootout? Yeah, they found his dead body in the crawl space beneath the house on 54th Street. And what was left of that old McMonkey charm was still around what was left of his neck. Yep, it was under his body. Okay. So he he died wearing that necklace. A major error by the defense turned out to be putting Patricia Hurst on the witness stand because she ended up taking the Fifth Amendment multiple times under cross-examination from the prosecution team. Well, was that, they didn't rehearse? I mean, I'm sure they did. It's mm-hmm. Emily Bailey. So they can't rehearse everything the prosecution is going to ask her. So they just tell her, take the fifth? He eventually supports her decision to take the fifth. Yeah, what happened was she was going to try and explain the Hibernia bank robbery. And F. Lee Bailey thought that he had uh, an agreement with the judge that the prosecution would not be allowed to ask about anything except the Hibernia bank robbery. Yes. But when she got on the witness stand and the prosecution gets to cross-examine, they want to ask her about, well, where were you for a year and a half after the Hibernia bank mm-hmm. robbery? What about the uh, the bank robbery in Carmichael where Myrna Opsal got killed? Mm-hmm. Did you drive the, the, the getaway car there? Because now she's on the hook for the death chamber. That's a capital offense. And so Effley Bailey's like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be able to ask this. And judge said, yeah, you can. Yes. And so the judge, or so Bailey says to Hurst, take the fifth. Okay. Because if you drive a getaway vehicle for a murder, mm, you are, you can, be, you can be charged with murder as well. Yeah. Ask yeah. Dick Hickok. Yeah. So when they start asking those questions, she takes the fifth. This is a terrible thing for a defense. Because the second you start taking the, def- the fifth, the jury thinks you're guilty. I mean, that's what they hear. That's not what you're saying, but what you're doing is refusing to answer questions because you do not want to incriminate yourself. Yeah, I'm Sort not. of a dead giveaway. And so the jury thinks that you're guilty, and they probably really think you're guilty when you do it 42 times on the witness stand. Yeah, I'm, I'm having, this juror over here is having a hard time with this. Yeah. And F. Lee Bailey himself admitted later that uh, that was the point in the case that it, it was too far gone. They shouldn't have put her on the stand. Mm. You know, they, they lost Strategic it there. error. Yeah, my bad, guys. <laughs> my bad. The jury took one day to reach a verdict of guilty for her part in the robbery at the Hibernia Bank. That was the first bank robbery that was committed April 1974. Two pieces of evidence matter most to the jury. The shootout at Mel's which is that sporting goods store where yes. they're they where were, she's just firing she's just firing from the yeah from randomly the, so that Bill and Emily can escape with two different guns yeah and the fact that Patricia Hurst kept the monkey charm 
that charm that Wolf had given her, they believed that if she would lie about the charm, she would lie about her entire ordeal with the SLA. She would say he raped her, it was, you know, unconsensual, and then it turns out that they were in love and, you know, carrying mementos around of each other that, what, what else was she capable of? After this guilty verdict is read, she leans over to Effie Bailey and asks, did I ever really have a chance? And, well, probably not, but certainly not after taking the fifth 42 yeah, that times. Yeah, might have been the uh, straw that broke the camel's back. The 42 straws that broke the camel's back. Bailey is quoted saying that she was more unpopular than the Boston Strangler at the time. And that people just really wanted to see her serve jail time. They did not want this rich, white woman to be above the law. And that, that was really all there was. To, in, the, in the court of public opinion, people hated her. That's, mm. Yeah. And figured she was probably going to get away with it. Mm-hmm. But that jury didn't let her. But this story's not over. Yes, the sense had been that someone from a powerful family like the Hearst would never be convicted. So her being convicted was a huge surprise. But then a lot of people are like, yeah, she was convicted, but they'll fix this. Right. Her conviction was immediately appealed, of course. And she was released on a million dollars bail. So... She didn't even go to prison immediately. They're waiting on this appeal and releasing her on bail. And she had to, there were some weird stipulations. Very strange. They, she had to be at her parents' house. And she had to have four bodyguards, which needed to be police officers, mm-hmm. paid for by her family to guard her 24-7. So which meant 12 bodyguards working in three eight-hour shifts. So they had to hire 12 people. Okay. Pay for it out of their pocket as a stipulation of, of Ever bail. bail. Yeah. yeah. Weird. On September 24th of 1976, Patricia was sentenced to seven years for this bank robbery. And then she's also going to have to face the music in L.A. where she and the Harrises were to go on trial for the shooting at Mel's Sporting Goods. Bill and Emily got six years for that crime. and. Patricia, who, you know, was the one who fired the gun, about 30 rounds, charged with assault with a deadly weapon, only got five years of probation. Wow. Yeah. Okay. When he talks. But you can even, even the Harrises or or Bills even says that they ended up benefiting from her privilege as well because they a lot of things didn't get looked into because they didn't want patty to go back on trial they and they certainly didn't want her to testify because nobody believed anything that came out of patty hurst's mouth so if they try to use her as their star prosecution witness Mm -hmm. they might walk right so bill and emily they actually got a better deal because the hearst family worked so hard to keep patty's name out of more litigation. The class privilege that Patty Hearst had rejected for her 19 months as a member of the SLA were now apparently protecting her from what they called regular people's justice. Patty was given immunity from prosecution to tell the story of what happened at the Carmichael bank robbery in April 1975, the day that Myrna Opsel was killed. Bailey appealed Patricia's 
conviction for the Hibernia bank robbery all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court who refused to hear the case. They were like, no, we're not looking at that. And she eventually spent 22 months in prison, but that is just shy of five months before she could have been paroled. Her sentence was commuted by the president of the United States at the time, Jimmy Carter. A big campaign to have the president commute her sentence. And he did. And he, he did. did. And there was political reasons and, and social oh, yeah. climate reasons at the time because yeah. what happened right around this same time was the Jonestown Massacre. That was in Guyana where, I mean, I remember, I didn't heard of this one at least, yeah. where the, it was the mass suicide. Well, in the Reverend Jim marks. Jones. Yes. Mm-hmm. 909 and people drank the cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. Yes. Some of them were injected with cyanide against their will, mm-hmm. it's later found out. And they made the children go first. Yeah, yes. 304 kids died. It's where we get first. the expression, drink the Kool-Aid. Yes. First. Yeah. I have heard the recordings of this, mm. and you don't ever want to do that. I do not. There are children screaming in agony. <sighs> People are screaming. It's horrible. And all the while, Jim Jones is rambling, yes. rambling on. And they're a little bit different than the SLA. Number one, numbers. Huge. Yeah, right. But they are switched. You have a white leader and all of the members are black. Mm. Whereas with SLA, you had the one black leader and all the members were white. Right. But this is what gives the public the, it, it better, it, it gives a better backbone for the brainwashing defense. It's like with people who didn't believe in brainwashing. They now all, do believe. They now are like, how did 900 and something people mm-hmm. get subjected to this if brainwashing isn't I mean, John thing. Wayne famously is the one person who is on Patricia Hearst's family's side for whatever reason. And when he comes out publicly and says, "How? why is it so hard to believe that one little 19-year-old girl was brainwashed? And now we're telling everybody that this one man brainwashed 900 people into killing themselves. Uh, He's got got a good point. Why are we not pardoning this woman for what she's been convicted of when she was also brainwashed? He's got a good point. And it's also a very dangerous road. So you're saying, you know... I'm not responsible. The one white man was able to brainwash, you know, you get into racism there. It's it's almost racist. I don't know. I don't know how much that got played up at the time. I certainly see what you're arguing. Because to me it is. It doesn't doesn't make sense to say. I'm not sure how much of an angle that was at the time. This white woman couldn't possibly have been coerced by this black man, but all of these all black these people, black could, people be, could be by this white person. And that's that's yeah. racist in itself. So I can see what he I, I can understand his his argument, and I don't think that was John Wayne's argument, but but the argument is how can you believe that all of these individuals were brainwashed and not yeah. this woman? And it is a it's a fair question, but. Wow, it just seems like she was a willing participant. It worked because that got Carter to commute her sentence. That is what got her sentence commuted, 100%. I mean, and pause. Why did Clinton pardon her? From the murder charge? 
Clinton pardoned her just for everything. Okay, everything. Okay, I was about to get into into that, and it I is not. There was always and the I'm, concern that she was going to be hauled back in front of a court yeah, again. Sure. Well, we'll get into all that. Just, yeah. I just wanted okay. to make sure that that's and where. This, I was going. Here's another thing off the record. Um, what political party is her family? Uh, her mother was a Republican, and her father was a Democrat. Because these are two. two her mother was close to Ronald Reagan. These are two. Her mother was yeah, all Democratic the, presidents mm-hmm. that are pop. Yeah, that are but once you get up that high, okay. When Jimmy, just well, saying. go ahead, Katie. Okay. You got yeah. this. And as Scott has mentioned, she wrote a book in 1982. Mm-hmm. After, I mean, she she gets out of prison in 1979. She writes this book in 1982. Yeah. And she's spilling it all. She's telling. She's 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 admitting to everything that she that she did basically. Yes, crimes. Yeah, uh, being the getaway driver for that murder, which means you can she could be prosecuted for murder. And F. Lee Bailey's on the record saying, you know, that, that is the dumbest thing I have. I mean, I'm not quoting him exactly, but the dumbest thing close. he's ever heard is she's got out and starts hitting because she was pardoned for that bank robbery. She was not pardoned for any other crime. So it's not like a double jeopardy thing where she couldn't be prosecuted mm-hmm. for that. And, and and she's just living her life. One thing I've skipped over here is this whole time she's been in prison, she's been engaged. Oh, yeah. To one of her bodyguards. As it doesn't she, take her long to find a new boyfriend. So this Her bodyguard, which ended up being her husband into the day he died, he was he was married when he was put on mm-hmm. duty of being her bodyguard, and that was one of the reasons because he's married, family man. They didn't think anything of it. They get in a relationship. She gets him a def- a, a divorce attorney, who then she ends up taking on as her own counsel and firing F. Lee Bailey and Al Johnson. Yeah, and now Al Johnson was and her were really close. He lived on the East Coast and had. Stayed years basically over here on the West Coast defending her, and they were they had a really good relationship. Her and Effie Bailey didn't really g haul, but but, but Bailey, Johnson was there all day, every day with the family, with her. He was the 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 communicator between Effie Bailey and Patricia Hearst and her family. Maybe Effie Bailey just wasn't buying her. No, Effie Bailey was doing his job, and he'd brought on Al Johnson to do all this other work. You know, he's yeah. he's head. Al counsel. Johnson was Bailey's longtime assistant. Yes, gotcha. Attorney, okay. and so she is engaged in prison. She gets out of prison. She gets married. She is to this guy. To this guy who she, was married. Who was married previously, but he's now divorced. Okay, they have a child together. They end up with two daughters yes. together. Bernie and Shaw. Is, Bernie Shaw's his yeah. name. Yes, and then she writes a book. And admits to everything, tells it all. But then in January of 2001, President Clinton pardons her from everything. His last day in office. A presidential pardon covers anything that you might have done up to that point in your life. Mm -hmm. Vaguely, in general terms. Because it's not the same as her sentence being commuted from Carter. Because she'd been convicted of that crime and served her time and her sentence was commuted, so she's out. This is a pardon. She is the only person in the history of the United States of America to be commuted, to have her sentence commuted by one president and be pardoned by another president. That's a fun fact. There's one person, and it's her. Why 
Why did he pardon her? Well, did he? He say- had to have a relationship with this with her family, right? Well, one of the reasons was because you know it was Carter who had commuted her sentence initially, and Carter was a Democrat, mm-hmm. Clinton was a Democrat, and so Jimmy and Rosalind, for whatever reason, became fans of Patricia and of cleaning up her name and letting her go on with her life, and so they both wrote letters to Bill Clinton and said, "Hey." Look, not calling in a favor here, but I hope that you but will I really am. look hard at but this one. And that's yeah. the that's the wink, wink. Yeah, right. That means hey, I'm calling in a favor. And so, of course, Bill Clinton is going to accede to any request from the most famous living Democratic ex president in the world or in the country at the time, which mm-hmm. is Jimmy Carter. So he was still held in high esteem and still is. I mean, he's yes. what ninety six years old and still building houses for humanity over in uh, over in Georgia today. So you know. Jimmy Carter's word carried a lot of weight with Democrats for a long time, including Bill Clinton, when he was asked to commute her sentence. No, he was asked to pardon her. I'm sorry, to pardon her, yeah. And then a pardon. A presidential pardon. Wow. For any crime she might have ever committed. Well, uh, I'm just going to ask this. Did that pay off for him? Oh, yeah. Wait, for who? For Bill Clinton. It was his last day in office. Forever. Yeah, yes, that, you know, because yeah, he he's, he's two-term president, so yeah. he was done. It worked so out great for Patricia Hearst, okay. though. Well, yeah. Because. She, yeah, because two years later, twenty and in 2003, which is 27 years after the crime, four members of the SLA, Bill and Emily Harris, and two others, were convicted of second-degree murder for the death of Myrna Opshaw during the Carmichael bank robbery in April of It's almost like Patricia Hearst being pardoned cleared the way for the U.S. attorney in that part of California to proceed yep. with the prosecution of the people who killed Myrna Opsal had gone unpunished uh, for 27 years until not long after Hearst is pardoned. Then they proceed with the prosecution of the people who took part in the bank robbery who weren't Patricia Hearst. And so I'm sure that the, her father's papers reported on all of that, right? I guess so. I don't. Mm. I don't have a subscription to the Examiner. I wish I did. It's a great paper, mm-hmm. but I mean, they're not even sure if it's in print still anymore. Maybe it's just online. Now. Oh, I doubt it. Yeah, the, of the four of them, all convicted of second degree murder, they each got seven years. That was the sentencing. Seven years, which we think you know that's 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 another thing probably benefited from Patricia. Mm-hmm. Life sentencing. Yeah. And. Because they're not going to call her in to testify mm-hmm. to this. And she would. She's not going to do it anyway. No. Patricia Hearst will be 69 on the 20th of this month. She was in um, three movies in the 90s. She had a small acting career. Yeah. John Waters movies. She's got two daughters. She's a grandmother. She raises show dogs. Her Shih Tzu Rocket won the top prize in the toy dog category at the Westminster Dog Show in 2015. So really everything comes up smelling like roses for Patricia Hurst. Yeah, uh, Jeffrey Tubin has a fantastic quote. I think it is the last sentence in his book. The story of Patricia Hurst, as extraordinary as it once was, had a familiar, even predictable ending. She did not turn into a revolutionary. She turned into her mother. And you have to end on that. Because isn't it every, I mean, isn't it a lot of women's worst nightmare? To, yeah, to, to grow up to be your mom. 
God. What? Yeah. Have I just listened to? I hope everybody stuck around because we told you at the beginning of the first part that this was going to be shit nuts crazy. And it has been. Right? Yeah. Are you mad? Are you no, gonna punch us? I'm just like I'm just baffled. I'm just baffled. Yeah, you thought it was going one way, and it it didn't twist. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yep. Have a good week, everybody. Yeah. Uh, give us a good review somewhere, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and our uh, online page, TrueCrimeOnEasyStreet.com. Katie, anything? That's it. Good night, everybody. <laughs>